0: honor to be bringing such a word to you tonight. And I was quite encouraged this morning listening to Chris's sermon because I think it ties in so well with what we're going to consider tonight. It's lovely when that happens. The Word of God is so uh, united and all parts of it tie together and illuminate each other. And tonight we're going to be thinking about some similar themes to this morning but from a different perspective. So this morning we were focusing more perhaps on... The fact that we are children of God by His grace. Tonight we're going to be focusing perhaps more on the wonder of us being God's children. I wonder what you think about when you hear the Lord's Prayer. Wherever you find Christians or Christian cultures in the world, in what used to be called Christendom, you find the Lord's Prayer. I think the Lord's Prayer is a big part of our culture historically in this country and in the West, in Europe. It's embedded in the culture at large. People learned it at school in the past. I'm sure many of you learned the Lord's Prayer and said it at school assemblies. you probably heard it at church services and funerals. I think a lot of children probably learned it from the youngest age with their mother's milk. They learned the Lord's Prayer. Perhaps not so much today. I wonder if you were to go to the streets of Brighton and ask people, do you know the Lord's Prayer, this prayer that we read today? I wonder how many people would be able to recite it for us. The danger, though, with Scripture is that if we're not careful, it can become all too familiar, can't it? We've heard it all before. And even when I was asked to preach about the Lord's Prayer, or more specifically the first line of the Lord's Prayer, my first reaction was, well, what possibly can I say which hasn't been said before? A million times about the Lord's Prayer. I'm sure if you're anything like me you've heard numerous sermons over the years about the Lord's Prayer. If we're not careful it can become so familiar it just trips off the tongue like a kind of mantra. Remember in my old church a long time ago there was a dear lady who whenever there was open prayer she would always say the Lord's Prayer, recite it and everybody else would join in every time without fail. Now, it's a wonderful thing that we can recite scripture like this together. But if we're not careful, as I said, it can become quite repetitive and we just forget the the impact of the words. We lose the impact. We just end up saying the words without really thinking about what we're saying. So tonight, I'm not going to offer you a big, long theological sermon on the Lord's Prayer, but I'm going to offer you a few meditations on the first line of this prayer, which will help us hopefully to regain a sense of wonder and meaning. very brief piece of context about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel and the accounts are slightly different. In my opinion, Jesus taught this prayer on two separate occasions, perhaps some more occasions which, which, occasions which are not recorded in the Bible for us. So this is a very, very good prayer which the Lord has given his followers to help them pray because it's not always easy to pray, is it? And we do need help to pray. So in Luke's account, we have the, have the apostles, the disciples, asking Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And he gives them this model prayer to try to help them. A very simple prayer, but containing so much depth, so much depth of wisdom and knowledge that all the books that have ever been written about prayer can never match this simple prayer for profundity, and worth, and value for the devotional life of a Christian. Now, we read tonight that Jesus says, when you pray, don't babble like the the pagans, like the Pharisees, who love to be seen by men. So these Pharisees would stand on street corners. They wanted everybody to see how religious and how devout they were. And Jesus is contrasting that kind of ostentatious public prayer with the private devotional life of the true believer. Now, Jesus makes it very clear that God values the heart of somebody who goes quietly and privately about their business, serving and honouring him, rather than making a big display in order to get praise from people. And this is the context in which the Lord's Prayer in Matthew is given. Jesus is not forbidding public prayer. We see that time and time again in the book of Acts. Jesus says, that we we see in the early church, that public prayer was part of the life of the church. But in this context, Jesus is, is commending somebody who goes quietly to their room and does business with God alone Jesus is not saying that we should just repeat the words of this prayer as though there was some magic in the words themselves they are scriptural words but this is very much a formula uh, which helps us a kind of pattern or a model to help us to pray and these are the kinds of things that you will find whenever true Christians are praying you'll find these kinds of themes repentance confession of sin praise to God prayer for provision supplication, all these things will be included when true Christians are praying together, all of which are included in the Lord's Prayer. Looking at verse 9, it says this, Our Father in heaven. This is the first line that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven. I want you to, to ponder this, that isn't it amazing, isn't it astonishing that the first thing the Christian ought to do is just to go to God and say to him, Our Father. There's no elaborate ritual there's no crying out to God in order to be heard. It's just a very simple coming to God, like a child to a father and saying, our father, addressing him in that simple way and expecting him to be heard. Have you noticed also that Jesus says here, our father, not my father? There's a sense of plurality here. We are the people of God. Even if we're praying alone in our room, we're part of a worldwide family of believers who are also praying very similar prayers. And we are united with them in our prayers. But today I want to deal with just two points. If, as Christians, we can address God and call him father and approach him as a father, as a parent, isn't this an amazing thing? And I want to put it to you tonight, this is amazing for two reasons. The first reason this is amazing, that we can call call God father and have a father-child relationship with him, is because of the vastness or the magnitude of God. And the second reason this is amazing is because of the holiness of God. So the first reason why it's amazing for any Christian to be able to call God father is because, as I said, of the vastness of God. I found some, some facts on the internet which I'm going to give you, and you'll see the reason in a minute why I gave you these facts. Now, does anybody here know the deepest part of the ocean in the world? Mariana Trench, just right, it's in the Pacific Ocean. That trench in the ocean is the deepest part of all the oceans in the world. It's actually seven miles deep. That's, I think that's the distance from here, the center of Brighton to Lewis. So You can picture that, that distance being underwater. That is quite a long way down. In fact, you could put Mount Everest in that trench, and there would still be thousands of feet of water between the summit of the mountain and the surface of the ocean. Now, at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, there's apparently there's eight tonnes of pressure per square inch. So that would be like roughly 100 elephants, the weight of 100 elephants standing on your head. That's how much pressure there would be at the bottom of the ocean. I don't know how they work these things out. If you dropped a pebble onto the surface of the ocean, it would take an hour to sink to the bottom of that trench. Only a handful of people have ever been there, down to the bottom, in a submarine. One of whom was the film director, James Cameron, who who directed Titanic. Who would have thought that? He's one of, I think, four people that have actually been down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. I was thinking, why did he go down there? Perhaps he was getting ideas for his new film, Titanic 2. I realised he went there years after the film was made. There's no way in a million years you would get me down there. Imagine if your, your submarine broke down at the bottom. There's no way you can call the AA to come rescue you or the Royal National Lifeboat Institution to send a submarine down to rescue you. You'd be, you'd be trapped down there, wouldn't you, at the bottom? That's how deep the ocean is. You know, they reckon that the oceans are so obscure, so mysterious, that we know more about space, parts of space, than we do about the ocean floor let's think about outside the Earth a little bit. Think about the moon, our closest satellite, our only, sa- only satellite. Did you know that 30 Earth-sized planets could fill up the space between the Earth and the moon? So when you see the, the moon out there in the sky, 30 Earth-sized planets could fill in that gap on average. The moon lies an average of 2,385, sorry, 238,000 miles away. If you were traveling by car at 60 miles an hour to the moon, it would take you half a year to get there. I was going to make a joke about the M25, but. Let's go a bit further afield. So, think about Mars. Did you know that Mars is 140 million miles from Earth? Picture that. And did you know that on Mars is a volcano? I think it's called, what's it called? Olympus Mons is a volcano on Mars. It's three times the height of Mount Everest, and it's the size of the state of Arizona. So, let's go even further afield. Did you know, in 1995, the first ever planet outside our solar system was discovered? Since then, thousands, I think 3,000 of these so-called exoplanets have been discovered since then. We've discovered, in the last few decades, thousands of these planets outside our own solar system. Let's think about the Sun, our Sun. So our Sun is one of at least 100 billion stars just in the Milky Way, our galaxy. The Milky Way is so big that even at the speed of light, it would take 100,000 years to travel across it. Scientists calculate there are at least 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe, the universe that we can see, each one brimming with stars. There are more stars, stars than grains of sand on all of Earth's beaches combined. And I'll put it to you, there's no reason why the universe should not go on and on and on forever with no boundary. Now, did you know, four American spacecraft have headed out of the solar system into what scientists call interstellar space. I'm just reading off a load of facts that I got. I didn't make this up. You can check the facts. They could be wrong. Voyager 1 is the furthest out. It's more than 11 billion miles from our suns. So this is the furthest man-made object from the Earth, 11 billion miles away. Voyager 2 is speeding along at more than 39,000 miles an hour. But it will still take more than 296,000 years to pass Sirius, the brightest star in our night sky. Ponder the ingenuity of mankind, but also the, you know, the, the magnitude of the universe. Have you ever looked at one of those diagrams that compare the size of the sun with the size of the earth? It's quite scary, actually, when you think how small the earth is. You think, what if this all blows up? But then think about the biggest stars in the universe. So the biggest star we found is a red supergiant, I found all this on the internet, called VY Canis Majoris. Located in the, in the constellation Canis Majoris, it's 4,900 light years from Earth. It's up to 2,100 times bigger than our sun. Can you imagine that a star, 2,000 times bigger than our sun? Massive red supergiants like this are commonly called hypergiants. I don't know about you, I find that quite sinister. There's something up in space which is 2,000 times bigger than our sun. What would the earth look like compared to that supergiant star? And yet in the book of Genesis, what do we read on the fourth day? Sort of throwaway comment, he also made the stars. Just like that, he also made the stars. The book of Genesis doesn't concern itself too much of how that actually happened. It just tells you, throwaway fact, God made the stars just like that. Now, if I'm honest, I find, when I, when I consider these facts, I find them disturbing. You can find a lot more facts like this. Disturbing, wonderful, magnificent. We human beings are so weak and so small, aren't we? Even that idea of the universe going on and on and on, with no, no end to it, as far as we know, is deeply troubling. It makes us feel very, very small and insignificant. You could ask the question, couldn't you, does our life have any meaning at all? I think it's enough to drive you mad if you're not a Christian how do you make sense of all this the more science the more science tells us about the universe cosmology, astronomy you know, the more disturbing it gets the more we know, we know a lot more than our ancestors did we're clinging to a tiny dot in space but the Bible the Bible says that not only did God make all this but God controls all this God is not part of this creation. God is outside of this creation. It's mysterious, isn't it? Our Father in heaven, where is God? He's in heaven. Heaven's a physical place. But heaven's not a place that you can go to and travel to. That Voyager spacecraft will never get to heaven. One day it'll sort of bump into heaven. It's a mystery, isn't it? It's a deep mystery. Where is this heaven where God is situated? There is a place. But God is outside this universe. He's not part of it. He made it. He controls it. He spoke all those planets and stars into being. He set them on their courses. And they do his bidding. And I wrote down this. For God to control them is easier than for us making a cup of tea or baking a cake. God could extinguish that volcano on Mars just like a child blowing out a candle on a birthday cake. Or he could even extinguish that great big star 2,000 times the size of the sun just like that if you wanted to. I also want you to consider that our planet is unique and special in a sense you could say that our planet has been elected by God the bible doesn't use that term but in a sense God has chosen this planet of all the planets that we know about and all the planets we don't know about to be a special planet where life the conditions are such that life can be sustained a good home for humanity the the crown of God's creation God has put us on such a planet Look at the the other planets, even in our solar system, they're barren and they're rocky or they're just balls of gas. You couldn't sustain any life at all, but this planet is teeming with abundant life, situated just close enough to the sun to get its warmth, but not so far away that we would freeze. Nehemiah 9 verse 6 says this, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, On it, the seas and all that is in them, you give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. I want you to consider for a moment how people mock and defy that God that controls all this, the God who is outside the universe, controls that whole universe. Imagine what it would be like if you were facing that God and that God was angry with you. I think that's a terrifying prospect. Wouldn't you do anything to be at peace with that God? You know, friends, our, our God is not a tame God. There's a bit at the end of, you know, Narnia, the book, you know, Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe, where they say about the lion Aslan. He's not a tame lion, and our God is not a tame God. He's not a little old man on a cloud. He is an Almighty Creator. He's all powerful, and He is magnificent and glorious. He is. Wonderful in every way, but also slightly terrifying. Just consider this as well. Our God could have been a horrible tyrant, a capricious, cruel monster. There's no, why, there's no logical reason why God should be such a loving God. He just, just happens to be. That's the way it is. He is a loving God. He could have been a wicked God who takes pleasure in, in suffering, but he's not like that at all. How fortunate, how blessed we are that our God, the God, the true God, is a loving God, a kind God, a God who communicates, a God who reaches out, a God who saves people and brings them into his kingdom. The psalmist ponders mankind's place and all this stuff. So Psalm 8, which Ruth read for us, When I consider your, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Why should this God even care about humans at all? This tiny dot. Actually, God cared so much that he sent his son to come to that tiny dot and become a tiny dot on that tiny dot to become a human fetus, smaller than a kidney bean in his mother's womb. What an amazing thing to come save us. Through Jesus, we can have a relationship with this almighty God and call him Father. He knows us and loves us. He hears our prayers. He's interested in our lives. He knows about that massive star, Canis Majoris. He also knows when a bird dies, when a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows how many hairs are on my head. Some of us have got more hair than others. He cares about the operation we're facing. He cares about the problems at work. He is almighty, he is transcendent, He's omnipotent, but he is also our Father. We come to him like beloved children, don't we? We don't come with fear, we come with a holy fear and a reverence. We don't come shaking with fear. I mean, a God like this could be feared. We could come before him and say, this God is so terrifying. We have to kind of bring all these, these offerings to him to try and placate him and make him on our side. Have you noticed that with all idols and false gods. People always try and bribe those gods and twist their arms and try and get them on side. But our God is not like that. All we have to do as Christians is come before him and call him Father through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. That's the first reason why it's amazing that we can call God Father because of the vastness of God. That God of the universe who creates all this and made all this and sustains all this is one with whom we can have a relationship and closeness and intimacy and the second reason I want to give to you tonight the last reason why this is amazing is because of the holiness of our God now people quite like the idea don't they of being children of God I believe Ruth can put me straight the Scots have this, have this expression about Scottish people we're all Jack is it Jack Tamson's Bairns like, well it's kind of an egalitarian statement well all, you know, all Scottish people all Jack Tamson's Bairns I don't know who Jack Tamson was some people like to have this idea, don't they, we're all kind of children of God, everybody's children of God by a dint of their being born a human being. In January 2016, the Pope released a video message, I've seen it. It highlights the importance of inter-religious dialogue and the belief different faith traditions hold in common, such as the figure of God and love. This is the Pope speaking. Many think differently, feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in different ways. In this crowd, in this range of religions, there is only one certainty that we all have, for we are all children of God. That's the Pope. We're all children of God. It makes you wonder why we bother the gospel at all, if that's the case. It does sound very noble, doesn't it? Very, very egalitarian. We're all children of God because we're human beings. On that basis, can anybody pray the Lord's Prayer? Can anybody call God Father? doesn't doesn't matter if they believe in Jesus or not. Now, there is an element of truth in this. Paul himself says we are his offspring. Talking to our pagan people, we are offspring. We are, in a sense, children of God because we are human beings. But we're not children in a kind of familial sense. Being a human being does not automatically make us a child of God well we all know don't we the Bible says that God is indescribably holy he's set apart from us he's different from us and he's morally pure but we are not and our sins have separated us from God so we are facing his wrath his righteous anger against sin now when I was at school mathematics was my worst subjects I was bottom of the class but I was top of the class at German it hasn't actually helped me at all but I tried to calculate how many sins I might possibly commit in my life if I lived to the age of 70. So Steve can put me straight. Probably most of you can put me straight. Probably Lillia can put me straight if I get this wrong. So if I sinned just once a day, I'd sin 365 times a year, unless it was a leap year. If I lived until the age of 70, I would have sinned 25,550 times on that basis. But if I sinned five times a day, I would sin 1,825 times a year. And that meant I would sin 127, 750 times by the age of 70. To be honest, though, most of us, me included, miss the mark more than five times a day. Everything we do, in a sense, is steeped in sin, especially before we become Christians. Even the good deeds we do are not enough to bring us to God or even kind of curry any favor with God. Now think about this. If one act of disobedience, just one act, Adam and Eve, was enough to damn the whole human race and separate us from God and condemn all of us because we all have that imputed sin in us, if that one sin was enough to separate Adam and Eve and get them expelled from paradise, you and I may have sinned thousands of times in our lives and yet people will have to answer for every single one of those sins on Judgment Day. We'll be there quite a long time. On that day, those people that have sinned all those sins are going to stand before that God who holds those massive hypergiant stars in his hands, all those planets and universes and worlds. They're going to stand before him and give account how they've broken his law and defied him and rejected him. You might object. You might say, well, won't God just let people off? He's such a loving God. Well, we know he won't. He loves the world, and he's chosen a people for himself, And he's chosen to send his son to save the world, that whoever believes in him should not have to pay the penalty for those sins. As we know, don't we, of the gospel, the son willingly allowed himself to be subjected to the punishment for the millions of sins that his people have committed. So imagine that that water at the bottom of the the Mariana Trench, the pressure, 100 elephants and one person crushing, 100 100 elephants and one inch of, of land If you were down there, that would crush you in seconds or crush me in seconds. We'd be annihilated just like that. But think about this. Jesus, for our sake, he suffered something far worse, the crushing weight of all those sins, the penalty upon him, upon one man. I don't know if any of you, you know, have you ever watched those films? Perhaps you've been somewhere in America or Canada where, you know, some group of campers is confronted by an angry bear. So it attacks the camp in the night. I I would find that terrifying. Imagine what it would be like to to face a fierce wild animal, but how much worse would it be to to face the wrath of the God of the universe, stored up and unleashed upon you because you have not repented and come to him. You might think that God is far too loving to do that to to a person, that God crushed his own son and allowed that to happen to him. Think about this, the God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and burned them to ashes, unrepentant, wicked people. Our God is no fool, and our God will not be mocked. Our God will bring vengeance and justice. But today is the day of grace, and God is calling people to repent and turn to him, put their faith in Jesus. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God, John 1. Chris quoted it this morning. This tells us clearly that the children of God are those who put their faith in Jesus. That that qualifies us to be a child of God. People who do not believe in Jesus, who reject him, are outside of the kingdom and still facing the judgment of that holy God. But the moment that somebody puts their faith in Jesus, the moment the spirit does that work of regeneration and gives the gift of faith, that person ceases being God's enemy, and becomes his child and he receives that person with joy as an an adopted son or daughter where does it leave those who do not receive Jesus well very sadly the wrath is stored up those who spurn Christ's sacrifice will be subjected to it on the judgment day and it will be all their own fault But the offer of salvation the good news of the gospel is open to all who believe my Muslim friend often uses the lord's prayer and says to me well anybody can pray this prayer you don't have to be a christian to pray this the prayer says forgive us our sins we forgive those who sin against us that shows that god doesn't need us to have any kind of atonement for sin all we need to do is say sorry to god and god will let us off but my friends this is a distinct distinctly christian prayer no non-christian who hasn't accepted christ can possibly pray this prayer our father because very sadly they are not children of god They're separated from God. If we try to pray this prayer without trusting Christ, it goes unheard and unanswered. Ungodly people have no right to pray this prayer. Remember the Pharisees. The Pharisees claimed to be children of God, but Jesus said, you belong to your father, the devil. I'm afraid they're they're even professing Christians in the world who parrot off this prayer time and time again, but their hearts are a million miles from God. Christ is the gate that gives us access to God and makes peace with him. Without that, we're still in our sins and enemies of God. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So to conclude, two amazing reasons why we can call God Father. One, because of the vastness of God and two, because of the holiness of God. I can call this transcendent, mighty creator my Father and I can call this holy, righteous Lord, Father as well. What a miracle it is, knowing the sinfulness, the rottenness of my own heart, the wickedness, and yet knowing that through Christ, I'm a beloved child of God. Aren't you glad that as Christians, God does hear you when you pray this prayer? You can go home tonight, you can go to your room before the, the work starts of the week, the business of the week, call on God as Father and know that through Christ, he hears you that's something we can all take with us into the uncertainties of this new year. Our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Oh God, I probably didn't put across very well, Lord, but I thank you that we can call you Father. And Lord, you are almighty God. And yet, Lord, you call us into your family through faith in Christ. And Lord, we know we deserve your judgment. We deserve to be brutally um, destroyed lord punished but thank you lord through jesus we can be set free of our sins and forgiven we can be brought into your families beloved children with no trace of guilt we can come before you and we know lord that almighty god you are concerned about the things of our lives and you're more than capable of dealing with the things which we cannot deal with pray lord we would get at least a sense of that wonder again thank you lord in jesus name amen